Have you ever felt like giving up, quitting, throwing in the towel? Welcome to Never Ever Give Up Hope featuring Carol Graham. She's an author, health coach, and motivational speaker. Backed into a corner multiple times in her life, Carol shares with you stories on how she overcame some of the toughest obstacles a person can go through in life, but refused to give up hope. Rather than admit defeat, an opportunity was presented, and it involves each and every one of you. Carol will feature spectacular guests who will share their messages of hope, encouragement, and their inspiration to prove why life's adversities only make you stronger. And now, welcoming the host of the show, here's Carol Graham. AJ, for that introduction. I also want to thank all my listeners from the round of the world. Each time that I look but once or twice a month, when I look at the stats, I'm just absolutely amazed at how many more countries, how many more individuals are listening to this show. Never, ever give up hope. We have a message to our listeners, which is just that. Never give up, no matter what happens to you. And I, my guests have been awesome. I'm blown away every time I listen to one of their um stories about their life and how they have overcome tragedy, how they have overcome circumstances that would make most people quit. And yet they not only overcame them, but they soared above them. And we have a list, a guest like that today. With me is Mary McLaurin. She is a writer, a poet, and a contributing blogger at Huffington Post. She is a survivor of a torturous childhood of sexual abuse by her own father. Just reading that when she sent it to me in her bio was difficult to even think about, let alone I can't begin to imagine what she had to endure as a young child. She is going to share her story with us today and also especially how she overcame it and how she overcame the aftermath which affected her later in life. I'm sure many listeners will be able to relate with her story. There's so many people out there who have had similar stories, and they will gain encouragement and strength by listening to what Mary has to share. Welcome, Mary. Hello. Hi. How are you? Well, we had a little trouble getting this up and running today, but I'm glad that it's all in order, and... um, we're ready to roll. How does that sound to you? <laughs> it sounds terrific. I'm sorry we've had so much trouble. Oh, no, that means it's going to be a really great interview with a lot of people that need to hear it. Fabulous. Now, I can't begin, as I mentioned in the introduction there, to imagine what you went through as a little girl being abused by her own father. What are your memories, or do you have any memories, and how did you cope with this as a child? Well, I didn't have any memories. I grew up in a nice neighborhood. Uh, lots of friends, kids, pretty normal childhood as far as that, as that goes. I had no recollection of any abuse by my father. I do have memories of not feeling comfortable around him when I was younger. He 
drank quite a bit, and I, I can remember vividly the smell of alcohol, which uh, kind of repelled me. I was too young to know why. I just knew I didn't like it. And I went to a parochial school and uh, was always very uh, shy and frightened. I was always, I was, I pretty much lived in fear. I didn't know why. And this continued on through junior high school. And of course, with the awkward teenage years got worse, uh, my, my feelings of isolation. But uh, since I had no, no memories of uh, what had happened with my father, I, I did things with him. He uh, took me to my riding lessons, took me to art classes. Um, I had I had a relationship with my father, but absolutely no recollection whatsoever uh, and knew nothing at the time that that it was going on. Has anyone ever asked you or if this is possible that it did not happen? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, That is probably the most painful thing is when you do recall memory, which I did in my early 30s. Okay. And you have your your close circle of family or friends that you relay this information to, and they don't believe you. They say things like, oh, I believe you believe it happened. Oh, my goodness. You know, I, I, I'm sure you... you think it happened or they say it's impossible for a grown man to actually be intimate that way with a young girl physically it's impossible or they or it makes them uncomfortable and they don't they don't even want to uh, address it and it it's very very painful because you it's you know you you really need that support right then but it's a very it's a hard thing for people to believe. Yes. And I've come I've come to some forgiveness with some people that I I thought treated me badly uh, because it it's just it is it's so hard to believe that your first your first natural instinct is to think there's no way this couldn't happen. So I had to come to some forgiveness there. But my husband didn't believe me, and he was a friend of my brother's, and he had grown up at our house. He stayed at our house quite often. He he even didn't believe me. He said, I, I think you think it happened. And I said, well, you ought to know our house was pretty crazy once, you know, I got older. And as we were there, four of us, we got older. We had a pretty chaotic household, but he, he didn't even believe it. So very uh, difficult. Now, what about did you have sisters? Yes, I have two sisters. Uh, one uh, was 15 years older than I. So by the time I was five she was getting married and leaving the home she hadn't lived there for oh I don't remember her ever living there she left home when she was three she packed her little bag and in the nighttime went to my grandmother's house which was three blocks away and lived there she was never made to come home and I'm sure that's because of the sexual abuse by my father and so I never knew her as a sister. I never knew she was my sister until I was five and she was getting married at our house. And I asked my mother, I said, why is your that lady friend of yours getting married in our house? 
And my mother said, she, that's your sister. And I said, no, she's not. And my mother told me later, she said, wow, I guess when I thought about it, you really had no way of knowing it was your sister because she was never there when you were growing up. That's so, amazing. Yeah, I have another sister uh, who is four years older than I am. She lives uh, somewhere down south. I, I haven't stayed in touch with her. I haven't been in touch with her for many years because um, her her relationship with me became very toxic and I decided to just kind of divorce myself from her, which was a very difficult decision, but she she never sought help. She well, she sought help, but she never continued with it. So she's still uh um full full of a lot of anger and, and rage and rightfully so, but it's very toxic to me. So and, did either one of them ever relate to you at any point in your life that this happened to them as well? Oh, yes. Uh, my one sister, the oldest sister, she went to therapy at one point and said she would never go back again because she started recalling memories and couldn't cope with it. She, she was an alcoholic, but she and I became very close when I got older. And she just said she started remembering things and she she didn't want to go go there. Uh, and my sister who lives down south, she also had uh, started to recall several instances uh, very vividly. And there comes a point in therapy with uh, when you're trying to recall specific memories where your therapist will, in my case, she said, you know, it's like we've come to this wall and you either have to go over the wall and we can finish or we have to stop here. And going over the wall involves either hypnosis or just some kind of meditative state where you can go back and really relive a couple of incidents of abuse. And uh, she said, you don't have to remember everything, just a couple of things, and I'll be right there with you. And I said, but why? Why? And she said, basically, it's because if you don't remember very specific instances of abuse, your mind will always doubt you. You will never, it's very, it's so hard to wrap your mind around that your own parent would do this to you, that there's going to be a constant doubt. And so we did, we went back and, uh, I re recalled, uh, two very specific events and it really did put me over to the other side. I, I couldn't deny it. My mind could not deny it any longer. And unfortunately my sister got to that point and she couldn't go, she couldn't go over the wall. She was with a different therapist and, um, so she still drinks and, you know, she still has a really hard time coping. And I, I really believe that's why is because she just could not finish that, that final step of therapy, which is the most difficult. So there's no judgment here on my part. It was just not her path. And so you are suggesting that it is of utmost important, uh, utmost importance that when you begin the procedure that you follow through in order to achieve healing. I personally believe so. I I abused drugs and alcohol for many years of my life, and once I had, I was in therapy for five years, and I probably went through this experience with my therapist of going over the wall after the first year, and once things became clear to me, I, if they had closed every pharmacy and every liquor store in the entire world, I could have cared less. I I didn't need it anymore. I didn't want it anymore. Mm. And uh, so for me, it it was like 
once I realized this had happened in my life, it was like a, a therapy was like putting pieces of a puzzle together. Wow. And when the puzzle was completed, I could look at it then and go, oh, I wasn't a crazy person. This is why I felt this way all these years when I had not remembered yet. This is why I was acting out. This is why I was drinking. Because prior to that, I never knew why I did the things I did. Now, what role did your mother play in all this? What memories do you have and and also later in life? Uh, My mother was actually an incredible woman and very accomplished in her own right after getting divorced from my father, but my mother was also uh, in great denial. She knew what was going on in the household, and I know this because in their room uh, on the side of the bed where my father would be sleeping, she had that part of the bed covered with books and piles of books, magazines, newspapers. There was no way anyone was getting in that bed with her. There was no room. Hmm. And my father, uh, he was a life insurance salesman. He was very charming, very good looking, and uh, had many affairs. Oftentimes wouldn't come home at night. But the nights he did come home, she knew he was sleeping somewhere in the house, and it wasn't with her. So um, she knew this was going on, but she, she lived very much in a state of complete denial in, on many levels. But on the other hand, was a very kind and caring woman. Uh, So it was very complicated, very complicated. Did you ever discuss this with her later in life? No, Carol, you know, by the time I had recovered my memories, both my parents had already passed away. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I think that's a blessing, though. Right. I can I can understand that. Now, did you were you able to forgive both of them? I did come to a place of forgiveness. It wasn't during my therapy. Uh, once my therapy concluded, uh, I and I my mind became you know my mind had become a lot clearer. I, I wasn't drinking or using any kind of drugs at all, and I realized that when I really thought about it, when I got past the rage, you know, there's stages just like when you lose a loved one, there's stages you go through, you go through denial and rage, anger, and then you come to a point of a little bit more clarity. And I thought, I just don't believe that most people, I'm sure there are, there are exceptions, but most normal human beings don't meet each other, a man and a woman and say, hey, what do you say we get married have a few kids and just really mess with them, really screw them up. It's, really? Yeah, it's, that's exactly a, what you have to try to come a, to grips with, right? Yeah, it's a learned behavior. I did some investigating. I talked to my grandmother who was still alive, and my father came from a very abusive household. Really? And as did my mother. And I think when survivors get to the point where they can start thinking about forgiveness – You have to start asking yourself, okay, this wasn't my fault, but why did this happen? Why did my parent do this to me? What what happened when they were little that would make them this way? Children, we know children don't come into this world born with with hate in their hearts Mm -hmm. or intent on being cruel and unkind. They learn it. 
And that's what really helped me start to focus on uh, trying to find out why my father did this to me and why my mother reacted the way she did and uh, getting past myself and looking into their childhoods. And that's what made it easier for me to come to forgiveness. My guess is you also came to a place of empathy and sympathy for those who you have run across in your life who have experienced similar things. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I see signs of it sometimes, you know, in children or people. I, I, I recognize symptoms of children that, to me, are obviously being abused in some way, shape, or form. And if you look at the parents that are with them, Sometimes those people you can tell are are tortured. They're they're not they're not mentally healthy people, and it's uh, it's really sad because you can tell they they don't even understand their own behavior yet, or maybe they haven't recalled memories of their own traumas when they were little, so they don't know what they're dealing with. I don't know, but I it, it's definitely something that's passed down from generation to generation, and it's. It, I think used to be much more prevalent than it is today because today, fortunately, unlike when I was younger, we're taught in schools to yes. go tell, yes. tell a teacher, yes. tell a friend, tell a, you know an adult. Whereas back then, it was just there was nothing you could do. And if you did, you probably were punished for it in some form or another, or not believed. Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Exactly. In so many. So many children are threatened by their abusers, yes. too. If yes. you tell, I'll do this, you know, this will be yes. the consequence. And do you, but obviously you have no recollection of that. So no. why? But yet you suppressed it. So you must have known it wasn't right. Yes. Even I, at a, as a very young age, you had that inner knowledge that this is not right. You do. You definitely do. And uh, you, you suppress it. You... You disassociate from your from your own body when it's happening. You learn to uh, literally leave your body to avoid dealing with what's happening to you, um, and you get very good at it. But you do know you do know with every cell, every fiber of your being that what's what's going on is not right. You 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 can feel it. And when I had to go and recall those couple of very real and uh, vivid instances of abuse by my father, uh, I went through that feeling of uh, disassociation and, and terror that, you know, makes one literally just leave their body. I mean, people who have been tortured, people, mm -hmm. prisoners of war, mm -hmm. uh, veterans with PTSD, you know, they you train yourself. If your body's experienced too much pain physically, emotionally, you leave, you leave it, and you hear so many people who have been through trauma say, you know, it was like I was, I was watching mm -hmm. from some other place. I wasn't even in my body. So you do know it's wrong, and you do suppress it. And with me, of course, suppressing it, and many other people, you uh, drink, drug, you know, whatever, whatever you can find to keep it, it uh, from coming forth. Now, along with the drinking and the drugs, you had mentioned that you had attempted suicide on more than one occasion. Mm -hmm. um, do you recall why you did that at the time, if you weren't aware of what was really going on? That is part of why I did it. I could not, for the life of me, as a, as a 
teenager, I, I ran with an older crowd. I wasn't promiscuous, but I was wild. As I said, my mother was neglectful. She was in denial. I, I had no accountability. I didn't have to be home. I didn't, uh, I didn't have curfews, things like that. I was pretty much, all of us kids were just, uh, we just ran. And so, uh, being with an older crowd, I was introduced to, uh, alcohol and myriad drugs. And, um, it, I always just felt like there was so much chaos in my mind. I was constantly just trying, if I just you know, I just wanted the, my mind to be quiet. And I kept, uh, you know, I would just drink and drug until I would pass out because then you would get some, I would get some relief. Right, right. But the, the suicide attempts really came because I couldn't, I couldn't drown out whatever was in my mind. I didn't know what it was. And I always felt very, um, just, I felt different. I felt, um, isolated as I mentioned earlier this continued you know throughout my teen years and I was very I was a pretty girl when I was younger and very flirtatious and I needed I, I always sought out attention from older men uh, another thing I didn't ever really understand mm. um, and the suicide attempts really just came from this feeling of I can't do this anymore. I don't even belong here. I don't know what's wrong with me, but I got to check out. I'm never going to find love. I'm never going to be normal. People think I'm crazy. And I, I just, I just want to go. Did you hate yourself? You know, I never hated myself. I always thought, I always knew I was different, but I, I was always a very, uh, empathetic person. And, uh, it seemed like I, I attracted people that were broken. Um, you know, people would confide in me. People would, you know, seek me out to pour their hearts out to. And, and all I wanted was to make them feel better and, uh, you know, help them get back up on their feet again. I, I never hated myself, but I never thought I was like anybody else. I never thought I would be like anybody else or that I would and I felt very undeserving all the time I anything a compliment or a gift I always felt very undeserving of it and so it was it was really just very conflicted all the time in my mind to the point where suicide to me just seemed like a logical next step hmm. you know it's interesting that you drew a connection between self-hatred and empathy because when you mentioned about how people gravitate to you who have been hurting, they had to see a sympathetic, empathetic person. And I never really thought about it until you mentioned it. Now, you can't really have self-hatred when you're empathetic you because you are aware and of what has happened to you and obviously aware of what has happened to somebody else, and that's where the connection is. So it's it's something that happened to you. It's not who you are. Correct, correct. And I think I think you know I refer to abuse survivors, even still to, as myself, as a broken person. I think I think we are we recover. We we glue our pieces back together. 
and uh, but we are never the same as what we would have been had we never never been abused Mm. and I think that uh, we recognize each other sometimes uh, Mm. and we are drawn to each other and it's kind of an unspoken respect and uh, uh, I've noticed it more and more throughout the years and I'm still in a lot of ways a person that uh, draws uh, people to me for you know, help or guidance, um, just just a shoulder, an ear, someone to talk to. Um, I really, really love it. I love being around younger people. I went back to college in my 40s, and I was pretty much everybody's mom there. And uh, <laughs> you know, I I just attract that, and I'm 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 grateful for that because when you know when you know pain and you see someone else in it, and they're not understanding why they're in it, all you want to do is help them get better and feel better and not not be in that pain so yeah it's it's hard you know you're very empathetic towards other people do you feel you have healed i do i feel that i've i've healed and even gone beyond that i feel that i've healed and can help others now heal and i you know i write a lot of poetry and one of the things i wrote about was like it's like a like being a mosaic, uh, you know, where all the broken pieces, you fit them all together in, in this beautiful fashion. And some of the, the edges are very rough and and others are smooth and all the colors are, are just beautiful together. But what really what really holds it together is the the gray, uh, gritty, um, like um, grit that, you know, you would have to it's not concrete i forget what Mm -hmm, it's called mm -hmm. but it's what you have to place the pieces in and it's that that that's what holds the pieces together and i think that's really part of the beauty of the mosaic is uh yeah the bright pretty pieces are all all terrific but seeing that it's all held together by this kind of plain and simple um thing uh, you know substance is really um that's as healed as you're going to get, but mm-hmm. but you're still completely put together. You're just it's just it's, it's beautiful. It's just in it everything's just arranged a little bit differently than it probably would have been had you never been abused. Well, it so, comes with understanding too, probably, right? Absolutely, absolutely, it comes with understanding, and it comes a lot with forgiveness. Yes. Uh, once you get to that point of forgiveness, uh, it's it's a down it's downhill then instead of uphill. That's the hardest part is the forgiveness. Very, very hard place to get to. Of course it would be. Yeah. And, yet, and yet, but the unforgiveness in the end is worse. It is. I think a lot of people confuse forgiving with, in their mind, excusing the behavior of the, the person that hurt you and saying, saying I forgive you means uh, it's just like it never happened. And that's not what forgiveness no, is. No, no. We, we forgive for ourselves so that we don't carry that burden around anymore and let that person have control over our lives. And we say, look, what you did is not OK, um, but I'm not willing to let you have that power anymore. And I'm letting I'm letting it go. I'm letting you go. And I I'm separating myself from all of this. And you you literally just you set it down like a heavy suitcase and you walk away. And that's. 
that's when it becomes your burden is gone and you are free to become what you what you are and pursue what you're passionate about. You're not consumed anymore with with uh, anger and bitterness. And so now you have all this uh, available space in your heart to fill it with, wow, I love painting or I love reading. I love writing. I love you know, science, technology, it's, uh, you know, the world is your mm-hmm. oyster at that point. So. There's, uh, in years past, and I'm sure you've heard this, there was the expression to forgive and to forget. And we don't do that anymore, no. which is exactly what you're talking about, because forgiving and forgetting is actually suppressing. Yes. And the healing can't come. I do not believe in the in the forgetting part because it happened. It made you who you were. You overcame it. You excelled above it. You were the bigger person by forgiving. And yet, how can you possibly forget it? That doesn't mean that you allow it to control you. Like you said, putting the suitcase down. It's right. no longer controlling you, but it's still part of your package. It's still part of your mosaic, and it's always going to be there. And honestly, you do get to the point where you realize it has made you who you you are or who you are becoming Mm -hmm. and who who you're you're, um, being kind of reborn into, your, your true self. But no, I don't forget. And in my blog, there's a lot of... A lot of evidence there in my poetry. Sometimes I'm, I'm uh, taken back and I, and I write about it and it helps me keep that. If I feel if I'm feeling uh, vulnerable or something has triggered me, I'll go and write about it. So, uh, no, I don't I, I, I would never say to forget it. It's it's unforgettable. So um, I have to say, too, that in this day of positivity and everything's everyone and everything. Everything is, is supposed to be Zen-like, and I, I swear if I see one more list about ten ways to stay positive all the time, I'm going to go crazy. Because <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> I th- well, I think it's detrimental in a lot of ways because I think there are a lot of people out there who are very depressed and uh, going through um, finding their way through trauma and feeling like, wow, everybody out there is so happy That's and right. so you know so Zen-like. But you know, a lot of those people. Uh, are, are on antidepressants or Xanax, things like that, which I'm not uh, judging at all. I mean, I think in certain cases uh, that antidepressants are uh, ne- a necessary thing. But what I am saying is that we are meant to feel everything. We're meant to feel grief, anger, bitterness, jealousy, joy, happiness, love, and to kind of imply that if you feel in any way other than happy that you are, quote unquote, a negative person, is very harmful because it's not that you're negative. You just happen to be going through a time in your life that you are experiencing something hurtful or something sad. Uh, You know, we have to feel all those emotions. If we don't allow ourselves to feel them and we just shove them aside, you know, that's where we run into trouble uh, by not acknowledging and validating those feelings. I totally agree with you, and I'm very glad you brought that up because one of my pet peeves, and especially you know when you're involved online, is things like "Don't worry, be happy." That's not healthy. Mm-mm. 
because there are things not necessarily that we have to worry out of out of context or out of um, you know to the extreme but there are things that like a healthy fear that we need to be aware of and take the correct measures to you know um, correct whatever it is instead of well whatever I'm just gonna not think about it you know it's all good everything's good no it's not always all good and you made some very legitimate points one of the things that I have often quoted was faith does not deny reality we can believe that we are going to change we can believe that things are going to be better but that doesn't mean it is right now correct you know we see ourselves as whole and complete and but right inside we're falling apart we're not going to stay there you know that's the reality of it but we're not going to deny it either and so you know don't worry be happy well today i'm not that happy you know and that's okay <laughs> and that's okay absolutely but i'll get through it because i believe that i will and so it's you're absolutely right, though. If you say you see one more, one more denial in that respect, it's just like you want to throw up your hands and say, "Are you really happy? Exactly. <laughs> What's really? What are you suppressing here? What are you covering up? Because everybody can't be happy all the time, and you need that whole spectrum of emotion, as you said, to make us who we are, and to be empathetic. Absolutely, and especially. Um abuse victims, trauma victims, I think it's really important to understand that that whole philosophy of don't worry, be happy, you know, as as being unhealthy because that's part of the suppression process. And I think that I know when I was in my darkest times, people would say things to me, especially about sexual abuse. Well, you know what? It's happened. It's in the past. He's dead now. Just forget it and go on. And I think for people out there who are kind of down in the abyss right now, and I know when I was and I would hear stories of people who had recovered or were doing okay, I was like, well, that's great for you. But you know what? I'm never going to get there. I'll never get there. And they just feel so alone, and I think that's part of the problem is because they're perceiving everybody else as being so so happy. But I, I honestly don't believe that we're ever alone because there's always that voice in your head. I don't care where you are, what's going on. You can try to drink it away, drug it away, <laughs> and whatever, but there's always that voice in your head. And whether you want to refer to it as faith, God, Buddha, just your self-survival instinct, there's always that voice in your head saying, you can do this, or no, we're not going to get out of here today, but other people have gotten out, and we will, meaning you and your inner child, you and your, your the other, you know, that voice that you that's always playing devil's advocate in your mind. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people do think that's God or the Holy Spirit, and that's fine. It's it's whatever you deem it to be, but it is that voice talking to you and telling you that you will you will survive. And it's it's at times when you you doubt that because you see everybody else 
you, you, you don't ever see anybody else that has your exact pain. And uh, so it's really important to remember when you're when you're really in your darkest hours that actually you're really not alone. You just have you just have to listen. You have to listen to yourself. And well, that's part of the problem, I believe, when with the attempted suicides, is it not? Because you can't believe that, uh, you know, everybody else is doing okay. And they can't possibly understand what you're going through or like what you experience as far as what's wrong with me. Exactly. Exactly. And everybody's pain is different. I mean, there are millions of people out there who have been abused by a parent, an uncle, a stranger. uh, and, And they all experience their pain differently. We have things in common, but it's it's very difficult to until you can get to the point where you can connect with someone some way somehow that can at least validate your pain uh-huh. and say you, even if you even if you're a person who's never been abused and someone comes to you and says you know I was sexually abused you know you don't have saying that you uh, validate their pain isn't the same as saying you believe them even if you don't believe them, you could still say, oh, my gosh, I can't imagine your pain. That that must be awful. I, I you know, how can I help you? It's not that, you know, you don't have to say, oh, come on, that didn't happen. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, even, you know, I, I, I look back and I still can't believe some of the things people have said to me. But uh, and I've written about it before, what, you know, what not to say to someone who comes to you, even if you don't <laughs> believe them, which is that's is, right. That's good. Is, is the uh, about the worst thing you could do. And if you don't believe them, maybe you know somebody who's been through something mm-hmm. that you could hook them up with. But um, it's a it's it's imperative that if someone comes to you with a any kind of problem and that someone is suffering that deeply, that you at least validate their pain. You don't have to agree with it. You don't even have to believe it. You just have to validate that they are going through something. And I I do think that the suicide attempts. Um, with me were when I had drowned that voice out so so much that I couldn't hear it anymore um, and you feel like no one believes you that it's that it's really really just a, a, a difficult time but like you say you 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 get through it and you have to find your own way through it and everybody's way is different everybody's path to recovery is different it's just finding a path some path that's what's important. And it's important that you're right. It's there. There is the way out. There is. There Absolutely. truly is. And Have you ever done any therapy with uh, with other people, like to help them? Any counseling or? Uh, you know, I do help. I do listen to a lot of people, a lot of abuse survivors. Uh, I have a lot of friends online, um, even in my writing community that I've spoken to about um, their issues um, from from all, all sorts of things, not mm-hmm. just abuse, but uh, PTSD, um, uh, just all kinds of subject matter. And uh, I, I think the, the best way I can help them is, honestly, I just listen. I, I just listen. And most of them know my story through my blog. Right. So they know I've been, what I've been through. And um, it's really just a matter of letting people speak, letting them instead of, you know, well, this jumping into your story, you know, let them tell their story. Well, that's also part of taking the position of being non-judgmental. 
Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Which is so important in a conversation of that type. Mm-hmm. It is. And I think people really need just sometimes a place of uh, a shoulder mm-hmm. to lean on or an ear to for someone to listen and just let them speak the words. Half the time, just getting the words out of mm-hmm. your mouth is healing. When were you diagnosed with PTSD and was that a result of what you had gone through as a child? It is. Uh, my therapist diagnosed me with it almost immediately. I had, I still, I had not recalled any memories, but I was having horrible dreams about being raped, although I could never see the person's face. Uh, it was like something was covering my eyes and it got so bad. I was waking my husband up, uh, kind of thrashing around, screaming and crying. So hmm. I sought out a therapist and, um, it took probably a good maybe three or four months before we even got around to talking about abuse. She uh, she's a, was a great therapist. She was very careful not to, um, you know, put any suggestions into mm-hmm, my mind. Mm-hmm. But, but she knew right away what my problem was. But she, I had to remember, of course. So it uh, but she diagnosed me with it uh, very early on and also diagnosed me a little bit later on with um, I didn't have any type of split personality. I wasn't losing time or losing. uh, I didn't have periods of time that I couldn't remember where I'd been, but I had a disassociative disorder whereupon I had told her very early on in therapy that I felt like I was watching my life uh, from the viewpoint of my left shoulder, that I was never really even in my body. And uh, she, I remember one of the first things she said to me is, what do you want to get out of therapy? What do you want out of this? And I said, I just would like 10 minutes of peace in my mind, mm. just 10 minutes. And she said, well, I think we can do a lot better than that. <laughs> once we got moving, um, she, it was actually very reassuring. She told me about this disorder and that I, this is what she believed I had. And that she said, eventually, Mary, you'll be able to go back into your body. And that just was so, such a relief to me because she believed me. She didn't tell me, oh, you're crazy. You know, you're in there. Um, she was very aware of this and um, I really was viewing my life from the outside looking in and uh, eventually I, 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 I came back in and uh, I, I live inside my own body now but I do know that sometimes I get triggered or something upsets me and yes. I can jump right out but um, it's a coping mechanism it is it is it's you know it's just self-protection and um, so Once I was diagnosed with those, and these are the pieces of the puzzle I started putting together and really starting to understand my past and and, and then beginning to understand why you were behaving the way you were, it's it's such a a relief to know that there was a reason. You're not crazy. You're not crazy. (laughs) Now, you, you also had to contend with complete kidney failure. You were on dialysis for five years, and you were working full time and raising your family. So how in the world did you do that? And tell us that story. Uh, well, I around the time I started my therapy and I, I started recalling memories of abuse and we had gone through all of my family history and uh, the, the pieces of the puzzle were beginning to really fit together for my therapist to, to get the broader picture of what was going on. It was about a year later maybe two. Um, I, I was feeling sick one weekend. It was a holiday weekend and I had a low grade fever. 
very tired, had my, uh, I had three children at home, um, all in elementary school. And uh, I just went for some basic blood work to my doctor to see what was going on. And to make a long story short, I was shuffled off right away to a nephrologist, a kidney doctor, and told that I only had 3% kidney function. Oh, my goodness. And I said, okay, well, doc, you know, give me the pills. What do I got to do? I got a job. I got kids, a husband. I got to get, get rolling here. And uh, he said, no, you're not not understanding, you know. And then I learned the word dialysis and what it meant, which was uh, four days a week, uh sitting in a dialysis chair for three to four hours at a time while they literally your blood goes through a machine and it's the toxins are cleaned out and then it goes back into your body and i was on the uh organ donor list at the time it was a three to five year wait for me it was five years and i was finally called uh called in and got a transplant but one during, or two hmm? one or two kidneys well, you only get one. You And actually, you only need one kidney. And that's why, uh, you know, living organ donation is such a wonderful thing, because many people go through their lives only having one kidney and never knowing it until they have an ultrasound or something that shows it. Uh, you only need one kidney. So both my kidneys failed. But uh, having the one kidney transplanted, uh, it, it restores you to complete health. And you do have to take... Uh, you know, medications uh, that suppress your immune system and whatnot, but you live a, a very normal life, unlike a life on dialysis where your uh, diet is very restricted. Um, mm. I did switch to something called peritoneal dialysis that you do on your own, uh, which is kind of complicated, which I won't go into, but it at least allows you not to be on the dietary restrictions and be free from actually going in to have dialysis. So that's what freed me up to be able to work. But oh, Okay. Um, it was a very difficult time, but my children, once they understood what was happening and got over the fear that I was going to die, uh, were very supportive and, uh, we, you know, you do what everybody does. You just, you just make it work and you manage. <laughs> That's right. We and all do did. It. Obviously you had a lot of stamina. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I think, I think everybody, I always feel kind of humble, uh, talking about, the situ my situation because uh, I, the one thing I've always taught my children is everyone has a story. It doesn't matter how much money where you know if they think you you see them live in this great home and they have all the kids have everything they want. There's everyone has a story and, and everybody I, I, has pain. Yes, and I know there are people out there that have gone through so much worse than what I've been through, and so it's very humbling to uh, to even speak about it. But I think we're we are as strong as we have to be when when things happen and you just you do what you have to do and you try that's, to do it with some grace that's the human spirit isn't it it is it truly is now once uh i was reading in your bio that you you said that to compare someone else's suffering to your own is pointless and that we only know our our own battle with pain relative to what we have had to endure, which is kind of what you've been talking a little bit about today. And yet you are living proof that you can overcome the tragedy. We've, we've certainly have ex, uh, explored that today and walk in grace and gratitude, which is what you just said. So how do you walk in grace and gratitude? What, what message would you want to share there? Uh, well, I came 
it took me a while to to realize that a lot of people aren't going to understand your pain, and this includes your close friends and even some family members. Uh, I I had a friend. She, I grew up with her, and she. It wasn't that she doubted my abuse, but I don't think she ever really could wrap her mind around it enough to understand uh, the effects that it had on me. And she was always calling, you know, telling, even to to this date, you know, you were such a wild child, and um, I don't know, kind of these uh, hurtful remarks. It, but it led me to believe that she really didn't get it. And I started realizing, you know what? She's lived a, a good life. I mean, she they she and her husband have worked very hard. They have a, a, a very uh, flourishing business. They've worked very hard at it, and they, they enjoy a lot of things. And she she grew up in, a, in a, what I would call a very loving home. I knew both her parents and her family, and they had their problems. Trust me, there were issues in their families, too, not like mine, but their own issues. And... Uh, but I don't think she's experienced uh, grief and uh, to to the degree I have. But that's unfair for me to say, because she has experienced uh, grief. Her husband got very ill and was on the verge of dying, she, and that that degree of grief to her could very easily be, if you wanted to try and make comparisons, the degree of grief I felt at what I have gone through. So, I mean, to try and compare people's pain is to me it, it is pointless because if you haven't been through someone's experience yourself mm-hmm. you aren't gonna it's very difficult for them to understand what you have been through and so you have to again you have to kind of find forgiveness there uh for um for them maybe not being as sympathetic or empathetic as you hope they would be because someone who for instance if i'm speaking to someone who's been sexually abused they're much more able to uh, be empathetic and open to what I'm saying whereas I'm speaking to someone who has been through a hard time in their life that has nothing to do with sexual abuse they it's it's much more difficult for them and I just think everybody has uh, their own path to walk and that we're comparing is almost like judging to me that's right it's like saying you 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 can't understand my pain. My pain mm-hmm. was so bad, you know. You'll never know my pain, but and, and I'm really glad you won't ever know my pain. But that doesn't mean they don't know pain to their to their the depths of their being for what they have been through. And so to me, it's it's a very judgmental thing to try to compare your pain to someone else's pain, and 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 feel like you know more because you've been through more. It's all Absolutely. relative. Absolutely. That's right. It is all relative. I totally mm-hmm. agree. Absolutely. Now, let's talk about organ donation. I know that you are an advocate to bring awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you like the audience to know? Well, that it's life-changing. Even being an organ donor, my first uh, transplant was from a gentleman who was in a very bad car accident and uh, they were able to keep him alive uh, to harvest his organs. I hate that term, harvest, but that's that's mm-hmm. the correct term. Um, he was a music teacher and apparently a very loving man, loving father, great husband. And uh, thanks to him, I received a kidney. And it took well, and I did great with it for eight years, and then I became very, very sick. 
in 2006 and lost the kidney. And uh, a year later, once I was strong, I had to go back on dialysis. And uh, when I was strong enough, uh, my son, uh, he donated a kidney to me. He was a living donor. Wow. And uh, he speaks about it, too. He uh, it's they did it laparoscopically. So it used to be when you donated a kidney, they would have to, of course, make a huge incision into your back and go digging for your kidney. It's it's really down in there. And uh, now they do it laparoscopically. And there's a much, much easier recovery much quicker recovery time and uh, is done. I think we were in both in surgery for four and a half or five hours. And it uh, it's just a matter of having a blood test and they are matching your blood type, of course, and uh, uh, matching some antigens and things like that to see if you're a good match. And then the uh, transplant can take place relatively quickly. And uh, uh, most of the time, it's very little, if any, uh, out-of-pocket costs to the donor. And uh, it's life-changing to the point where you you feel so horrible and are so sick and you have a transplant that the very next day you feel so much better. Really? You, you had no idea how sick you were, that sick had become your normal. You ha- you totally forget what feeling good is. And when you wake up and you feel good, you're like, wow, this is what it was like because you've forgotten for so long. It's that quick. Your recovery is that quick. It's it's amazing. So, you, you know, being an organ donor, being an organ donor on your driver's license, uh, it's a huge gift. It's uh, and it's it's a huge gift to to be a living donor if you if you can and it's not uh, you can live fine with one kidney and you get plenty of counseling you are made aware of any uh, uh any you know any possible scenario that could happen you're given you know psychological uh counseling so that they're very sure you understand what you know they want to make sure my son was really aware of what he was doing mm-hmm. and uh, he was only 23 at the time and uh, it's it's very thorough and but also very simple, and it's uh, it is life changing. Recovery time is is quick, uh, incredibly quick. It was very quick for him, and uh, I would have been out of the hospital in three days. But I had um, it's so funny I couldn't stop hiccuping, so they wouldn't <laughs> let me go. I I hiccuped for three days straight and I want to make sure it wasn't anything <laughs> related, but I couldn't stop hiccuping. And so they, they kept me, but I was up and around and feeling fabulous. Just, I, I knew I was just, I was like a, a, a little cult, you know, being let out into the fall air for the first time. Just, I just wanted to go out and frisk and frolic and run and, you know, and you're able to do all of those things again that you weren't able to do before. So I, yeah, my son new and I life. do a lot of. You got new life. You do. It is a new life. It it is a, absolutely a new life for the person that you donate to, and it's and my son feels so good about having done it. He's 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 he lives in a lot of gratitude and and grace because of it. He's he just you know he said to me you know I, I said Dylan I don't want you to do this uh, you know you're young and he said mom. You gave me a kidney. I think I can. You know, he said, you gave me life. I think I can give you a kidney. That's what he said. You gave me life. I can give you a kidney. And he, uh, he loved doing it. It was, he said it was something he knew he was born to do, a reason he was here. And that just 
just knocked your socks off, I bet, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, it did. It, it, uh, well, he wanted to do it the first time, but he was too young. He was, you know, he was too little, and um, he was very upset he couldn't donate the first time around. Really? But, yeah, yeah. Wow. He, that's why he said he just, so when the second time came around, he said, no, no, this, this is happening. And he was actually kind of angry that we had to wait almost a year, but uh, I had to get healthy enough uh, mm-hmm. to receive the kidney to, to, you know, we had to wait. So. And how but, long yeah. ago has that been now? That's been, uh, that was in 2007. So, so everything is functioning years. normally and properly. Everything is great. I, I pretty much have the labs of uh, just a regular old person. <laughs> So it is truly really a gift. Yeah. Now, before we before we um, close, I want to talk about your belief in therapy animals, mm-hmm. because that's a something that's very near and dear to my heart as we have rescued dogs. Yes. I know. So the thing with rescue animals is they have, I believe, full awareness that they are being rescued. And you are talking therapy animals, which is a totally different thing. But I'd like you to maybe expound a little bit on that. And I'm assuming therapy animals is those who help people in, I don't know, you you tell us. Well, um, some of, one of the greatest animals on this planet for healing is a horse. I had a horse, uh, my father bought me a horse when I was, nine and I I every moment of my time that I wasn't uh, ha- didn't have to be anywhere else I was at the stable I became a, a, a very good rider teacher trail guy I, I did everything I eventually um, you know when I had my own horse I worked off the uh, the boarding fees and everything by working at the stable for years and uh, uh, animals are I think all can heal, but horses seem to have an innate ability to just know our hearts, our fears. And uh, they, when there's a place in North Carolina that uh, I love so much, they're called healing horses. And I know the, I don't know them personally. I know them through, they're like my part of my online family and they, they rescue horses. And once the horses are restored to, to emotional and physical health, these horses, in turn, heal people. They, mm. you know, uh, children with autism, people with um, any kind of mental disability, uh, PTSD, vets. Uh, they are, you know, some of them have never even been near a horse, but they they come to this place and they spend time with the horses, and they have the most amazing experiences. And a horse just can, uh, I've always said too, as far as riding goes, the minute you put your foot in that stirrup and climb on that horse, the horse knows how well you ride. He knows, he or she Mm -hmm. knows uh, your level of expertise. Horses know pretty much everything about you the minute you come near them. And they respond to it. And they, but they are the most trusting and, and healing animals, but they don't just give it away. They, they make you earn it. And by making you earn it, I mean, they they want you, they they want to heal you so badly, but you have to come with them. You have to go with them into that this this place they take you, uh, just by spending time with them. And I ha- you know we know that dogs in your instance you're you're a rescuer. Dogs uh, 
they have done testing to say that people who own dogs and cats, you know, their their blood pressure is always better. They're, you know, they seem to be, they don't get as depressed as often, things like that, that having a pet around is, is very healthy for us emotionally. And oddly enough, you know, when I was saying, you know, broken, attracts broken, I've always had a, a really just tremendous gift for uh, healing animals. My sister had come across two Afghan hounds that had never been in human contact. They had been kept in cages um, all of their lives. They were only about two. And for some reason, my mom decided to take them. My sister had come across them, was going to have them put down. And my mother took them. And uh, I, I worked with them right away. Um, they wouldn't come in the house. They wouldn't even, it took me, oh my gosh, probably a month to, to get them so that they would uh, accept food from me and, and whatnot. But um, I I do believe that there are animals that are here on earth that are sent to heal. Uh, I've owned, I can't, you know, countless animals, horses, dogs, cats, birds. And I can tell you there were a handful of them that were uh, ex- extraordinary. They, okay. they, they just have extraordinary powers to, to make you heal, help you heal, to, to feel comfortable with yourself. And I always say, you know, we, we go out, we rescue animals, but in the end, it's really them that rescue us. Absolutely. And it's, I think that those who have been rescued become the rescuers. They do. They absolutely do. I, I believe that with all of my heart, that they they know they've been rescued. And they, they then, in turn, rescue the person who rescued them. Absolutely. We've seen it. Yeah, we've had it, so many dogs. Maybe maybe we need a lot of rescuing. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know, it's, I, it's, I, I'm sure it's probably you have the same thing. I think these animals find their way into your life. Mm, it's amazing. You're right. Literally, they, they, they find their way. They find their way to where they belong. And it's because they right now they need to be rescued. And, you know, now they're allowing dogs in hospitals to be with people when, you know, in hospice, yes, things yes. like that. And we just know that animals I always say they have so much to teach us, but we're most of us too arrogant to listen. And um, the so yeah, horses are, are very near and dear to me, and uh, I'm a big uh, big advocate for uh, saving elephants. I always said if I had the money, I would love to go and be a mahout for a while, learn how to be a mahout, and take care of orphaned elephants. I think that they are very much the same way. There's so many causes like that, you know, like I I recently uh, spoke with a woman who had um, been very involved with saving the white lions. You know, it's just it's amazing when they start to share the stories and how they communicate with these animals. Oh, absolutely. It's just incredible. It is. And, is. And such a pleasure to hear. Well, to sum it up. Is there any particular call to action that you would like to give our audience? Now, we will have all your contact information, of course, and your blog where you share your poetry, your pain, your laughter, um, many things um, that you want to address. Tell us what that might be in your blog and anything else you would like the audience to um, to connect with you. Well, I would just put the call out there to anyone who might be listening that feels, you know, just alone in the dark. Uh, it, it's a it's a start. You can reach out. You can reach out to me through my blog. There's a there's a, a contact me uh, page that you can click on and send me your information. My uh, 
you can follow my uh, email, uh, my blog through email and contact me. Uh, and I would say, I really believe that sometimes you just have to, you don't, you're not going to recover overnight from anything. You're not going to wake up one day and say, hey, I'm going to beat this thing, darn it. I'm going to beat it today. It's, it's small, a process. Small steps. Uh, sometimes just putting your feet on the ground, getting out of bed and walking to the shower and getting in the tub is something to be celebrated. Some people may say, oh, my God, that's nothing. But to someone who's who's seriously depressed, it's huge. That's right. And it's just little steps is all you need to take. And one little step, if anything I said or anything in my voice calls to you, please contact me. I, I you know, I, I work at home and uh, I I nothing gives me more uh, sense, uh, more of a sense of real um, pride and just, well, not even pride, just gratitude that, you, you know, and humbleness that someone would think to come to me for help that I could, that I could possibly in some even small way, uh, make that person feel better. It, it, I can't tell you it's a two way street because it help it heal. It continues to heal me to help anybody else heal. And so maybe that's one little step that someone can take out there is, you know, just, just reach out because I, I will get back to you. And I would also say to try desperately to hear the voice inside yourself. That's, that's trying to help you now, trying to save you and not to, uh, not to put too much pressure on yourself to, as you said, you know, don't worry, be happy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> feel the feels, well, but you, you got to take a step. Well, one of the things that you, said I think that is key to a lot of the things that you shared today and that is that healing is reciprocal and when we whether it's whether we are rescuing an animal or rescuing another human being it is reciprocal in that when we help them they in turn help us and that's not the motivation Mm-mm. but it's it's definitely the realization of what really happens in the healing process is the more we give of ourselves the more we gain that is one of the biggest lessons in life to me and that is- came through as you were speaking today and you do walk in grace and gratitude and it's it's the knowledge of not only where you've been and who you are because of that but because because of that, you are who you are and you can help in a graceful manner without judging. Exactly. It's, uh, it, it, it really does, as you say, to, to help someone else. It, it, it helps us. And you, you, you do have to come from gratitude and just be so thankful for, for everything that you have in your life. I mean, I, I live in a little apartment. I live on a fixed income. I I have very little money and I I really could care less. I don't have a lot of clothes. I don't I don't have those things. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having those at all. I know some people who I mean that's that's their joy in life is to uh uh-huh. in, enjoy a lot of these things they've worked all their life for. So I'm in no way judging them at all, but for me, uh, I feel grateful just being where I am and f- the things that please me are uh are more are from the heart those types of things where I can uh, hear someone's story or or uh, or and connect with them 
connect with them because it, it keeps me it keeps me humble and it keeps me uh, it, it keeps me in gratitude. It, it really does. And, it, and I I agree with you 100 percent about, um, you know, whether it's an animal or a person that even when you're helping someone else, they don't realize it, but they're also rescuing you. It's 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 a constant ebb and flow. And it's so important that uh, that we that we validate each other's pain and we realize that our pain is no more than anybody else's. It's like I said, it's all relative to what that person has experienced. And just, you know, we just shouldn't judge. We just need to, you know, take each person as they are and, and help them the best you can. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Mary. It has been enlightening. It certainly has been a very warm and uh, wonderful interview, especially in light of the pain that you shared in the beginning. But your warmth, like I mentioned, your grace comes through and your sincerity to help others. And so for that, I thank you. And we definitely will have all your contact information made available and trust that um, we'll also be able to understand even a little bit more as we read some of your poetry, because I know that's a very uh, huge way that a lot of people who have gone through a lot of pain not only can understand, but also uh, can relate. And so we thank you for that. Well, thank you. And I do want to say real quick, thank you for doing this. I've listened to many of your stories. I was just listening to a couple of them yesterday. And it's a wonderful, just an amazing thing that you're doing, you know, in reaching out and and getting information and help to, to people out there that otherwise may not ever hear it or have it or had lost hope altogether. So you are a true rescuer. And I, I'm very grateful, oh, very grateful you. to have been on the show and, and given the opportunity to, to tell my story. It's, it's a wonderful thing. And you know what's happening, Mary, what I have noticed. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Believe sure. me, that really touches my heart. But what I've noticed is that hearing the stories, whether it's uh, one-on-one or, um, you know, listening to a broadcast or whatever, it changes us. It Mm -hmm. really does change us, and it's a good thing. And understanding people's pain, understanding what makes other humans tick. Absolutely. I mean, we are all different. We are all unique. We all have our own story. And what we can glean from someone else's story, and one word we've used many times today is be empathetic, it just makes us better people. Absolutely. Thank you, Mary, and thank you for those kind words, and I'm sure we will speak again. I hope so, Carol. Thank you so much. Okay. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Never Ever Give Up Hope, featuring Carol Graham. Did you know that most people succeed because they are determined to? Quitting was never an option. Carol loves your comments and will respond to each one. So please subscribe and review this podcast. A rating of five stars would be outstanding and appreciated. Remember, if you are still here, there is always hope.